Bring the good old bugle, boys, we'll sing another song. Sing it with the spirit that will start the world along. Sing it as we used to sing it, 50,000 strong, while we were marching through Georgia. Sang the chorus from Atlanta to the sea while we were marching. Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And uh, in this episode, I'll be beginning a, a three or three and a half week uh, completion of the of the Civil War series. I've been working on on and off for quite a while now. Um, so I'm glad to to wrap that up and get onto some other projects. Uh, and if you've been listening along, you know, that'll be Mark Twain. That'll take a good year or so. So I, you know, I welcome you to join me on that uh, journey. If you want to read along with me, I'll be starting with the Mississippi writings, then probably do Innocence Abroad. Um, and then uh, see where it goes from there. Um, but right now, let's uh, let's talk about uh, the last year of the American Civil War. And once again, I, I just want to praise this anthology. It's taken me a long time to get through it, not because it's 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 tedious. It's just um, you know that's mostly been life that's been in my in my way. But um, it's just a wonderful collection of primary sources on the American Civil War that pretty much touches all aspects of the war that you might want to get into. Uh, the only one topic I think that's not really well represented here is maybe Confederate nationalism, um, that, which has been kind of an issue of scholarly interest, you know, uh, how the Confederates kind of created their nationhood. It, it's a lot of the stuff's implied in here, but it's um, not, uh, not uh, the focus, I think, of, of this particular anthology. And maybe still I, I th a little bit too much reliance on maybe uh, soldiers' memoirs written like in the 1880s and 1890s, where there seems to have been a big, um, a lot of chance to cash in by writers uh, writing those memoirs. Or maybe it was just people as they got older wanted to jot down their their thoughts. Um, and a lot of those are kind of like detailed battlefield descriptions, which are certainly are interesting. Um, it is part of the mix of the anthology, so I'm not <clears throat> really complaining about it. But you can tell if you've been listening to the series, the stuff that really gets me exciting is. It's kind of the media debates, the, um, you know, the perspectives from African-Americans, the issues on Reconstruction, the end of slavery, all that kind of stuff. So in this episode, I'll be looking at documents from March to May of 1864. And um, largely this is about, I mean, his, what's going on at this time? Well, it's the beginning of the Overland Campaign and the beginning of the Atlanta Campaign, which uh, is kind of the the last two major campaigns of the war that uh, we'll have to cover um, that the really the decisive ones at the in the last year of the war and that'll be take a couple episodes to get through for sure um, but we got that but we also have a uh, ongoing discussions of black soldiers and their place especially in the context of the Fort Pillow massacre which um, if you haven't heard about it it was just the un unjust killing of, of many African-American soldiers by the soldiers of Nathan Bedford Forrest. Um, you know, it wasn't like back against the, or, you know, back against the wall kind of executions necessarily, but it was an unjustifiable 
massacre of soldiers who uh, were were defenseless and defeated. So uh, that issue. Um, what else here? I guess that's it. I, I guess that's enough uh, introduction to what's in this these documents. It's, uh, there'll be other details, of course, as always. Um, quite a few documents too to talk about. So I'll probably skip a few if I feel they're not going to add much to the to the story. Um, limiting myself to 100 pages per episode or sticking to 100 pages per episode means, you know, sometimes I get a whole lot of documents to to shift through, sift through, I mean. So anyways, we got uh, first Catherine Edmondson's diary. Um, this is a uh, uh, Confederate woman we've met several times in this series. Uh, once again, I'm kind of always tempted to maybe a better way of doing this series would have been to like pick a theme, right? And look at the documents, but a theme throughout the war or pick a series of authors um, like women diarists would have been one theme we could have maybe focused on for one episode. Um, in hindsight, I probably would have liked to do it that way. It's just not how I'm used to doing this series, but it's just something when I think back would have made this series a little more intellectually stimulating and useful to, to listeners. But anyways, we, we've met her before, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you've forgotten. And here she's talking about the Kilpatrick raid in North Carolina. This was a raid to free Union prisoners. Um, and not too much to say about it. It was just a, an effort by the Union to to liberate some soldiers who were, who were, who were captured. Um, and Edmondson, being a Confederate woman, uh, is going to focus on the cruelty and the, the evil actions of, of the Union in this effort. Uh, she call, talks about Yankee wickedness throughout here and generally the uncivilized nature of her, of her enemies, the evil designs of the Union Army. Uh, I think I have it here. Um, where she's, she writes, and this is just a raid. Of course, both sides were raiding the other side. It was a common use of cavalry during the war was to raid behind enemy lines to, um, you know, strategically, I don't think the stuff mattered that much, but it, it had an impact on the perception of the enemy, perhaps. And it maybe marginally had a military effect. I'm not sure. I'll leave that to military historians to, to parse out. But she writes here, it is not regular warfare, and they are not entitled to the privileges of prisoners of war. It is mockery to insist that they are. Dahlgrid is the son of one Commodore now in command before Charleston. The one aids in the infamous attempt to destroy a whole city and hurry thousands of non-combatants incapable of resistance to a dreadful death. The other is even worse. At the head of a gang of picked ruffians armed with fireballs, his deliberate purpose is to turn loose upon innocent women, a mixed multitude, a mob of prisoners, without even the show of an authority to command them, with orders to pillage, burn, destroy, murder, in short, to do all their evil passions, prompt them, while he himself, a commissioned officer of the U.S., hangs without trial the heads of a government whose meanest soldier his government has admitted to the rights of the belligerent. Talk of Punic faith no more. Henceforth, let it be Yankee faith. Like father, like son, Dalgrain and Kilpatrick's past are marked with desolation, vide some of the particulars marked D. Uh... That's how the this ent ent entrance ends, um, but yeah, I mean it's a little over the top, of course. But of course, she's experiencing the the raid rather directly, um, or you know, close to her. Um, but you know, I'm not I'm not here to make a moral judgment about the 
treatment of prisoners of war on either side. I'm sure there's issues on both sides. But, you know, for instance, let's let's be honest here. Like you have Andersonville, which I think we'll talk about on this or the next episode, um, that prison camp where many Union soldiers died of, of bad treatment. You have the Fort Pillow Massacre where soldiers weren't even taken as prisoners. Uh, you have you have uh, the Confederates. Um, re-enslaving um, captured black soldiers, making that a law, and the Union responds with a uh, threat to execute officers who engage in that act, but how much, how many times did they actually fall through on that? I, mean, I think we saw documents where Union officers were frustrated at the, at the lack of follow-through on that policy. So I, I think, by and large, there's a pretty clear moral difference in how prisoners were treated, and, and trying to free some is not... Uh, um, an inappropriate act by by the union in this case, um, but it, it is a point of view. Edmondson does have her her right to write her diary, I suppose, uh, even if she's going to exaggerate the actions of the enemy. Um, yeah, the other document. This is actually a more interesting aspect because we're, we're getting more territory that's occupied by their side, right? Occupied by the Union, I should say. More of the South is being occupied, and that's becoming, dealing with civilians is becoming a bigger issue. Questions of reconstruction is a bigger issue. Questions of how to deal with diehard Confederates in occupied territory, or reoccupied or liberated, whatever term we want to use here. That comes forth in this document by Ellen Renshaw House. Ellen Renshaw House. Also another diarist, and so another, another Confederate diarist, writing in March of 1864. And she's living in occupied Knoxville. And her brother was captured. Um, her other brother was in the army at the time. So she's from a kind of a die-card Confederate family. But interestingly, her father had a perception in occupied Knoxville, or liberated Knoxville, I've got to use the right language here, as a Union man, right? And of course, in... Kentucky and Tennessee, there are many unionist enclaves and many unionist voices in those areas. And her father was being seen as that. And this is like an interesting gendered thing, because I think we saw that before with like New Orleans. There's this idea that the women were the most hostile to the occupiers. Um, and I don't know if that's true or not. It's just her father seemed to be working with the the Union Army and got kind of dubbed a Union man and wasn't being punished. But as we'll see later on, House herself was actually kicked out of Knoxville for being a diehard Confederate. Um, so the family was actually broken up, which is, is rather interesting. But she, though, insists on her faithfulness to the cause, contrasting herself with her father, even saying, I told him, she's talking to a general here or a captain or something. Uh, she's a union captain. She says, I told him I certainly would lay down my life willingly. I know by doing so I would do the Confederate the least. If I knew by doing so I'd do the Confederacy the least good. That I had never done anything I would not do again or say anything that I would not ever say under the same circumstances. So obviously she is presenting herself as a diehard Confederate here. So it's not surprising she gets, um, um, you know, treated rather harshly. And she does talk about overall tensions with pro-Confederate civilians in, in Knoxville. Um, even at the point, uh, like here, we got, um, where did this quote start? Some of these sentences are so long. Um, anyways, it's too long to read. 
Um, but here, here's, here's, here's a shorter example here. I heard that General Carter says Colonel Keith ought to have put a Mrs. Hamilton in prison because she said she gloried in being a rebel. And if he had her in his power again, he would certainly do it. So that's another example of a woman being targeted as pro-Confederate. But I was just struck by the fact that her father got dubbed a Union man. And she doesn't really say if that's true or not here in this diary, or at least passage we have. But uh, that it was maybe easier for men to, to kind of switch allegiances, or at least fake that they switched allegiances. It might speak to kind of some misogyny in, in America at the time. A kind of an idea of, of women being more diehard in their in their faithfulness to the confederate cause um and we've certainly seen plenty of evidence of that so i don't think it's totally untrue um next we have a uh, scientific america i don't think we've seen an article like this before in this anthology but scientific america talking about the new rolling uh, mills in pittsburgh in march 26 and there's not much to say about this i think it's just included as evidence of of growing industrial capacity and capabilities in the north. Well, next we have a really important document. This is Harriet Jacobs and Louisa M. Jacobs to Lydia Marie Child, writing in March of 1864. If uh, you don't know, um, we actually have met her before too, but Harriet Jacobs is most famous for her slave narrative, which was, I think it was rediscovered and kind of in, in recent years. It was published at the time, but it was kind of forgotten. Like another kind of example of, I guess, historical, um, uh, what's the word? Erasure of, of women's voices that was refound in the, you know, in recent decades. Um, but it's something that's commonly studied now as one of the best and greatest of the slave narratives. And of course, Harriet Jacobs was also involved in reconstruction. Uh, in a very hands-on way, and we see that here. She establishes here the Jacobs Free School, free school, um, and she's reporting on it to Lydia Marie Child. The child, of course, is, a, is an abolitionist uh, who had a friendship with Harriet Jacobs for a while. And she talks about teaching free people self-reliance and how important that is and how this was a school created by black people for black people. And she sees this as integral to the advancement of, of the race and uh, the future of black people. Um, she talks also here about the legacy of slavery quite a lot. And th this is a theme that comes up as more and more people talk about Reconstruction is just to what, even with black soldiers, this came up a lot too. It's like, to what degree does the legacy of slavery damage the psychology or the, uh, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a nature and nurture argument, right? Where, where are the conditions of black people? Uh, a product of slavery or were they were natural of course the racists argued that this was the natural state of them and you know obviously that was not the case slavery you know destroyed families destroyed social networks uh limited educational opportunities and all those things but um but of course that's an ongoing debate at the time of harry jacob's life as uh and it would be for another century after afterwards so she's very conscious of that and many uh, of the activists and people working for black equality at this time are thinking about this conversation. Um, you know, talking back to the racist, I guess, is a way to think about it. But one aspect she's really interested in because that's part of her whole life, of course, is is race mixing. It was a big part of her slave narrative is the, is the gaze of her master towards her. And, um, 
uh, sexual harassment and violence is, is a big th- part of that narrative, which is why it's so important to read that one. But she writes, uh, children abounded in these cabins. They peeped out from every nook and corner. Many of them were extremely pretty and bright looking. Some of them had features and complexions purely Anglo-Saxon, showing plainly enough the slaveholders' horror of amalgamation. Some smiled upon us, and they were very ready to be friends. Others regarded us with shy, suspicious looks, as is apt to be the case with children who have had a cramped childhood. But they all want to accept our invitation and go to school, and did so, and so did all the parents for them. It's very important. She's talking about the, of course, the the fact of of race mixing in the context of slavery. But she says, like, also, like, their childhood was stolen from them. But nevertheless, they're they're eager to begin a proper childhood, with rooted in education. Not surprising, given the the focus on education in this period of American history. And it all comes to the character of the people. And she spends a lot of time discussing their character, um, but also saying slavery has not destroyed the children's spirit. We've, we've seen many documents about uh, enslaved men and women freeing themselves, fighting in the war, serving the Union Army in various ways, resisting on the plantation. But I think this might be our first really close look at the at childhood. And it's, I think it's important that, that it is... Um, acknowledged and it was a part of reconstruction part of the one of the more exciting aspects of reconstruction is the establishment of these schools she talks about the nature of education as well uh what the goal of it is um she writes for instance and how education can help break this uh the damage um to the black psychology uh that has been created by by slavery she writes, these people born and bred in slavery had always been so accustomed to look upon the white race as their natural superiors and masters that we had some doubts whether they could easily throw off the habit. And the fact of their grieving preference for colored teachers as managers of the establishment seemed to us to indicate that even their brief possession of freedom had begun to inspire them with respect for their race. Very, very key, again, to Reconstruction is, is you know, acknowledging uh, Black's contribution to to make building America and remaking it in the context of a, of a revolution. She also talks about the establishment of an adult school um, and the nobility of black soldiers who helped make all this possible. It's really an inspiring document. Um, one of the one of the most powerful ones. And you're going to find me getting really excited about any document in the remainder of this anthology that is speaking to the questions of reconstruction because I, you know, I really should get a hold of the reconstruction volume that is kind of the sequel to this series. Um, but it's going to be a while since until I um, do that in any case. I, I'm, in a, I'm in Taiwan. It's hard to get these books, unfortunately. Someday I'm just going to save up enough money and, and order them. But I think Library of America is still not shipping internationally because of COVID. Maybe they changed. I'll check it out. So next we have a very interesting uh, issue, um, Jim Heskel, who gives a statement about escaping from slavery. This is dated March 1864. Um, so the issue here is he's from one of those places in Tennessee that were exempt from the Emancipation Proclamation. Right? And this is, this is why the 13th Amendment needed to be passed. Of course, the Emancipation Proclamation was a wartime measure, and it didn't apply to all slaves, not in the borders and not in certain specific locations of of Union-occupied Confederate states, like this part of Tennessee. I think maybe all of Tennessee, or at least part of Tennessee, was immune from uh, the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, 
of course, Lincoln here was trying to appease the Unionists, and and that's another conversation to have. Just to what degree? How how was this Unionist presence inflated um, at the time? There was this belief that there'd be a significant portion of the Southern population that did not support the Confederacy. I'm the more I learn, I guess, the more I'm doubting how significant that was. But it was certainly part of the policy, right? And so this legal case was a man who who escaped slavery. And the army declared him free, even though he was from a place in the country not um, not where the Emancipation Proclamation didn't apply. So this seems to have been an extra-legal emancipation by the army. And so the master sued to get him back into slavery. And this is a report. Uh, well, it's part of a report by the officer who did the freeing of this man and he included this statement by him by him in the report and in there is the poor treatment of the master towards the slave that's the emphasis and, and then he explains why he escaped it had to do with brutality and violence and whipping and all those things um now i don't know the ultimate faith my, my guess is he remained free i think at this point in the war there wasn't as much hand-wringing over over this issue like there was early in the war so uh, another interesting uh document about a kind of a legal gray area left by the emancipation proclamation um next we have susan uh let me see here susan wolker to zebulon b vance which is a confederate voice um written in april 1864 it's a letter uh in north carolina basically this is talking about food rights in the south um, now, Vance, the guy she's writing to, is is a it was kind of a critic of Davis. So he was someone who was not he was kind of more of an extreme nationalist. I think he wanted Davis to, you know, be more extreme, I guess, um, and do more to win the war. But the main importance of this document is just how bad conditions are getting in the South. Um, North Carolina itself had to appropriate a million dollars. Earlier, the earlier year, just to support poor families and the wives of soldiers who were left behind without enough money to buy groceries, and there was, of course, mega inflation, hyperinflation in the South as as the Confederate government just sort of printed money to to deal with uh, shortages and and paying soldiers and all that. But uh, people, anyone who's left at home that wasn't a subsistence agricultural state was forced to know to deal with rising food prices and this leads to you know food riots and things another aspect of the breakdown of of confederate strength so all of this stuff is really good setup for the final year of the war i think it's really setting up uh how the tide has really changed on emancipation really that's kind of a done deal um reconstruction is already in its work in some of the occupied areas um, and we see, uh, you know, still you know, harsh resistance to the North because the fighting would go on for another year. But we, the writing's on the wall here that the war is is over and the Confederates are not going to be able to maintain their war effort for much longer. So, of course, that brings us to the big military campaigns of 1864, which is the Atlanta campaign and the um, Overland campaign the attempt to seize Richmond by, by Grant in Virginia and Sherman's leadership in the Atlanta campaign. And so this letter we have here, 
it's actually like the orders, Grant's orders to Sherman in April of 1864, telling him what to do. And he doesn't give a lot of details. He just trusts him without having, you know, trusts him to do it. Um, he, and he, he basically lays out the plan for the spring campaign, which is to focus on Atlanta and Richmond. Those are going to be the two targets of that spring campaign. And he orders Sherman to seize Atlanta and to target war resources. He writes specifically, you, I propose to move against Johnson's army to break it up and to get into the interior of enemy country as far as you can, inflicting all the damage you can against their war resources, which is, of course, orders that Sherman gladfully uh, is able to um, fulfill. Not quite as quickly as I think Grant would have liked. The, the Atlanta campaign was a, a bit of a slog, but, but once it was completed, once Johnson's army was broken up, it did... Uh, Come close to ending fighting out in the West. There would still be that with the Hoods campaign in Tennessee and things like that. We'll get the chance to to mention a little bit about Johnson's leadership in the in the West. Um, Johnson was was I think one of those Confederate generals who had he been uplifted, like he was wounded, right, in the Richmond campaign, McClellan's Richmond campaign, and then Lee took over. Right. I imagine if he had stayed in command of the Confederate armies in Virginia, you know, maybe the war would have been a little bit different. It, you know, I don't think the outcome would have changed that much, but he wasn't as attracted by these like grand assaults and this, I, this effort to kind of destroy the Union Army in one fell swoop or, or invade the North and get, kind of get behind Washington and all these ambitions that, that Lee had that all ended up kind of disastrous. Um. Uh, next, we have a campaign that we don't want to forget about, I guess. It, it's, it's mentioned here through a letter by William Winters to Harriet Winters' wife in April. And this is about the Red River campaign. This was a campaign that was actually being wound down. This was a, like a campaign in Arkansas, maybe part of Texas, you know, wherever the Red River is. And it was an attempt to try to seize that. It's not the main focus of the war effort at this point, And this campaign is sort of abandoned. It's kind of inconclusive. But um, this is a fun little document because it does, we do, it's mostly a description of the countryside and we see like, you know, discussion of the Catholic missions um, at work here. Uh, a lot of interest in just the, the beauty of the, of, of the countryside. Uh, also optimism about the success of, of the campaign. Um, he's later on killed in action. He's killed not long after this letter was written though. So... Uh, even these side campaigns are still pretty bloody. It was the Civil War. Well, next, uh, once again, we have Wilbur Fisk uh, writing to the Green Mountain Freedman. He's another voice we've seen a lot. Um, I, you know, even though he shows up a lot here, I'm not a huge fan of his letters because they are sort of more battlefield accounts um, often. Um, but these are important. They're how the... They're how the people back at home kept tabs on the war effort and, and heard stories, and that was really important to them. They, Of course, they were getting letters, um, millions of letters during the Civil War. Back and forth, we got, uh, you know, detailing different aspects of the battle. It's a cornucopia of sources for historians who want to dig into this. That's why there's still new perspectives on the Civil War being produced all the time because there's just so much has been written. But, you know, a media conduit to a soldier, I think it's... It is significant. And he's writing during the Overland campaign. So he, he's continuing his letters to them and this time writing about the, 
um, about the preparation for that campaign, the wilderness campaign or the Overland campaign, whatever we want to call it, um, the push to Richmond. Um, he writes, this letter though is, is fairly good, even though I'm not a big fan of most of his letters. This one is pretty good. He's got a lot of optimism with the new leadership and the new plan. He talks about the necessity of smashing slavery, which is uh, something we are hearing more and more from soldiers at this point. Um, you know, the necessity of totally defeating the rebellion. Um, you know, it's been humbled. It needs to be totally defeated. Um, and he meditates on the nature of this particular rebellion. And I think we've seen this before in other sources. I think maybe even Lincoln mentioned this in one of his speeches or something, is that often rebellions in history are bottom-up affairs, peasant uprisings or popular revolutions, working-class revolutions. They are efforts to overthrow the power from below. But the Confederate Revolution was a, revol was a top-down revolt, right? Uh, this is important politically because, it, again, it kind of feeds into this argument that this conf the Southern people were dragged along into this war. Um, it was like a, con a conspiracy of the plantation class, which I think downplays the agency of those working class people that we want to redeem in some way by not affiliating them with the Confederates. See, but they did, you know, the hundreds of thousands of them fought for the Confederacy, fought for the maintenance of slavery, were racists. Um, saw the end of slavery as a threat to their livelihood, however meager it might have been. Um, but again, it's an argument we've seen before, but I think it's a significant one. <clears throat> he also, though, mentions about the persistence of prejudice in the Union Army. Um, and he loses some frustration about people who still hold on to this idea that this war is just about freeing the slaves. Um, he writes, but even if, it, if I was fighting to free the Negro simply, I don't know why I should be acting from a motive that I need to be ashamed of. I verily believe that he who, when he was on the earth, healed foul leprosy, gave sight to the blind beggars, and preached the gospel to the poor, would not be ashamed to act from such a motive. And if he would not, why should I? Fighting to free the N-word, why yes, my dear fellow, we are doing just that and a great deal more. So, yeah, you know, this is, I think, one of my favorite of Wilbur Fisk's letter to the Green Mountain Freedmen. Maybe if I read them all back to back and like in a book, maybe I would appreciate them a little bit more than I have. So next we check in with Ellen Renshaw House, her diary from April 8th. Remember, she's the woman who was uh, claiming to her commitment to the Confederate cause in occupied Knoxville. And what this letter is about, or this diary entry, sorry, this diary entry is about how General Carter, who's the Union general in this place, uh, expelled Confederate sympathizers and mostly were women. These were mostly women. So is there a gender nature to unionism? I don't think so. I, I bet for every unionist man, there was a unionist woman. I, I just think it was easier for men for whatever reason, which I, I can't really pinpoint right now, to be seen as, as earnest in their claims to be unionist, more so than women. Or women, for whatever reason, are feeling more of a need to stick to their kind of guns on this issue. Maybe they've lost, maybe it's because of what they lost. Maybe, I think it's fair to say women lost. Um, as much if not more than men, right? Yeah, men lost their lives. Uh, women lost their sons and husbands, 
and and fathers and maybe that increased their bitterness towards towards the union uh, they struggled at home they faced slave rebellion they faced uh, starvation they faced uh, unjust taxation they faced you know they they carried a lot on their shoulders and that may have led to them but anyways well whatever I, I'm pointing this out as just something that I think I need to study more maybe someone can point me to a good source on this issue um, or maybe it's just something that needs to be researched I don't know but uh, she is eventually forced to leave and she defended herself in the document, in her diary, um, and continues to complain about union mistreatment of her. So that, that's kind of the end of her story. I suppose I doubt we'll see another document by her, but it's a, the House story here, um, Ellen House. It's, it's a nice little tale. It's a nice little tale of Americana to come out of the war, I think. Interesting, anyways. Um, next, we have the Detroit Advertiser uh, getting a letter from Lewis Bryan Adams on the introduction of the 13th Amendment. This was in April of 1864. Of course, it would take whatever till December, till after the election, to finally be issued or finally be passed. But this is when it was first introduced in Congress. And this is a, a, just a newspaper account praising the introduction of the, of the 13th Amendment. Unfortunately, there's nothing too interesting to say about this document because his discussion of the 13th Amendment is largely in broad platitudes of freedom and, and liberty and, and, and all that, kind of just parroting like the general uh, language of the time, I suppose. No real deep analysis about the need to do that. Um, it's very much a work of propaganda, so I guess it is what it is, but it's it's not like, like I think so far still my favorite document in this set is the Harriet Jacobs one, because it's really grappling with the profound psychological issues and looking forward to the hard work that's going to need to be done in, in Reconstruction. It's not just saying, oh, we'll pass this law and, and everything, you know, and then liberty will reign in, in America. It's not that, but this this is this is a piece of of political propaganda necessary, of course, for passage of the of the Thirteenth Amendment eventually, but not the most interesting historical text. All right, uh, so now we get to the Fort Pillow massacre. We got a handful of documents about it. Um, I think it comes up again and again, but. This particular document is dated April 1864. It's Achilles v. Clark to Judith Porter and Henrietta Ray. So this is a account by one of the murderers at the Fort Pillow Massacre. He's from the, the point of view of the 20th Tennessee Cavalry, which was serving under Nathan Bedford Forrest, who, of course, ultimately carries the moral responsibility for, for this uh, crime. And I'll just read what he says here because he, he describes the massacre and justifies it all in um, this letter. He spins it around and, and of course, he's going to blame it on the, on the Union side. He says, um, At 2 p.m., General Force demanded a surrender and gave 20 minutes to consider. The Yankees refused, threatening that if we charge their breastworks to show no quarter, 
I'll just stop here and say, yeah, that's that's how war works. You know, if you're defending a position and and they ref and you refuse to surrender and they attack, you don't show quarter in that circumstance. They are the aggressor. It's not they're not it's not they don't have to negotiate, right? In that sense. You know, it's the defender has the right to not show quarter. They, the people who charging would be attacking. It's not in their interest to be selective in how they deal with the enemy at that case, which is different for a victor who can choose to restrain themselves and take prisoners. Yeah, anyways, next. Um, the bugle sounded the charge, and in less than 10 minutes, we were in the fort hurling the cowardly villains hollowing down the bluff. Our men were so exacerbated by the Yankees' threats of no quarter that they gave but little. The slaughter was awful. Words cannot describe the scene. The poor deluded Negroes would run up to our men, fall upon their knees with uplifted hands, scream for mercy, but they were ordered to their feet and then shot down. The white men fared a little better. Their fort turned into a great slaughter pen. Blood, human blood, stood about in pools and brains could not have been gathered up in any quantity. I, with several others, tried to stop the butchery and at one time had partially succeeded, but General Force ordered them shot down like dogs and the carnage continued. Finally, our men became sick of blood and the firing ceased. The result? The report kept in the post adjutant's officer office showed that there were 799 men on duty in the morning of the fight. We brought away about 160 white men and about 75 Negroes. Two transports came down to, after the fight and took off the badly wounded. Yankees and Negroes, about 30 or 40 in all. The remainders were thrown into the trench before which two hours previously they had stood and bade open defiance to Forrest and all his ragged hounds, end quote. So some prisoners were taken, but the, the violence in the aftermath of taking, seizing the fort when men were surrendering was not necessary. So the fact that a handful survived and, and weren't murdered after they were captured does not... Uh, less than the moral weight of this uh, horrendous act. And it was seen so at the time. It was seen condemned at the time by, by observers. Um, uh, it, it's modern. I mean, we, we talk about the world civil war as being a, a prelude to the modern war. And, and I think there's that case to be made. But you know, in terms of early trench warfare and, and the fact that mobility uh, could not keep up with firepower, right? That's, you know, in warfare you have mobility and you have firepower. And if, if they're matched, you have one kind of warfare. If firepower overtakes our capacity to move on the battlefield or protect ourselves from that firepower, you're going to end up with trench warfare, right? Like in World War I. Um, you didn't really have combined arms yet, not to the effect we would in the 20th century, but you start to get that. But I think it's also a prelude to modern warfare in these kinds of acts, like this brutal violence, this indifference to keeping taking prisoners or not. You know, the treatment of surrendering soldiers as enemy combatants. All right. Um, I guess the other thing to mention here is he does say, say, oh, I tried to stop it. But, um, you know, that means he, he realized the immorality of his acts at the time. 
Uh, not Forrest, this author here. Clark. Um, <clears throat> anyways. Moving on. Next we have Lee to Davis. Yeah, fuck these guys. Um, April 1864. Just talking about their plans for the spring. We know Grant's and Sherman's plan for the spring, and he doesn't really have much to say here. He's just saying, oh, need more troops. No. No weapons. No supplies. I have to forage. Uh, anyways. He gives some details here. Doesn't really matter. Uh, then we have uh, the New York Times. Writing about the Fort Pillow Massacre. Uh, April 16th, 1864. It's a pretty uh, straightforward account, but it's important that they emphasize that most of the killing took place after the fort was taken. And... Um, And the surrender took place uh, immediately upon the surrender, they write, ensured a scene which utterly baffles description. Up to that time, clearly few of our men had been killed, but insatiate as fiends, bloodthirsty as devil incarnate, the Confederate com commenced an indiscriminate butchery of whites and blacks, including those of both colors who had been previously wounded. The black soldiers, becoming demoralized, rushed to the rear, the white officers having thrown down their arms. Both white and black were bayoneted, shot or sabered. Even dead bodies were horribly mutilated. The children of seven or eight years and several Negro women killed in cold blood. Soldiers unable to speak from wounds were shot dead and their bodies rolled down the banks on the river. The dead and wounded Negroes were piled in heaps and burned and several citizens who had joined our forces for protection were killed or wounded. And then 400 or so were killed altogether. Um, and then various reports are mentioned here. Of the 350 colored troops, not more than 56 escaped the massacre. Um, the details we'll never know for sure. Maybe, maybe there were people who were put up against the wall and shot. Maybe maybe I was wrong to, to say it that way. I, my impression in the world was like, kind of like the, the sacking of a town and just people were being shot as they were fleeing or, or begging for surrender or whatever. But, but who knows? I don't, I don't put it past them. Um, Next, we have like Lincoln's uh, response to the Fort Pillow Massacre in April of 1864. It's an address at the Baltimore Sanitary Fair, which was like a charitable organization raising money for the war effort and for soldiers. Uh, his basic argument here is that uh, Americans are taking the lead in defining liberty in the new in this century. I guess it's, in, it's not the new century. It's the middle of the century by this point. But in, for the world, Americans are taking a lead in defining and redefining liberty. Um, and he right. I mean, he actually takes on like my issue with the word liberty is it, it kind of gets uh, used. Uh, I mean, it's not really a well-defined. It's a good thing that's not always well-defined in America's history. Right? I think Lincoln knows this. He writes, we all declare for liberty, but in using the same word, we do not all mean the same thing. With some, the word liberty may mean for each man to do as he pleases with himself and the products of his labor, while with others, the same word may mean for some men to do as they please to other men and the products of other men's labor. Here, the two, not only different, but incompatible things are called by the same name, liberty. And that follows that each of the things is by the respective parties called by two different and incompatible names, liberty and tyranny. So he's taking the line saying one side, what's one side is, is liberty is actually tyranny, obviously. Now he talks about like the, the, 
the shepherd, the wolf, and the and the sheep in the Constitution of Liberty. He says, the shepherd drives the wolf from the sheep's throat, for which the sheep thanks the shepherd as liberator, while the wolf denounces him for the same act as a destroyer of liberty, especially as the sheep was a black one. Plainly, the sheep and the wolf are not agreed upon the definition of the word liberty. Um, pretty straightforward. But we also have here his uh, news about the Fort Pillow Massacre. He seems to not have all the details yet. He's just saying this is... Uh, um, a sign of the of the nature of the enemy. And he does a little political talk here saying, uh, this is under investigation and we'll find out the truth soon enough. If there really wasn't a massacre, we'll know it. If there was, uh, guilty would be brought to kneel, whatever. Um, but anyways. Next. More on the Fort Pillow Massacre. Rightfully so, rightfully so. A very, very important event uh, in the Civil War. We have a guy, uh, RCH to the Christian Recorder. It's not clear who this person is. Uh, the editors here think it may have been Richard Harvey Kane, who was an African Methodist Episcopalian minister from New York, who eventually was played a role in Reconstruction. But, but we don't know. It's really good, though. It's really good on rhetoric. It's a really good example of... of taking this Fort Pillow Massacre and translate it into a pretty uh, rising oratory. It almost should be spoken here. Right. Shall we press forward in the great march of mind and matter? Wind still blows and the southern breezes brings a wail of horror from the devoted Fort Pillow. Kentucky, that virago in the community of states, whose scoldings have retarded the progress of civilization in these war times more than any other, is now drinking the cup of secession's wrath, which is the just retribution meted out to her. But the dying groans of those butchered men, the desolate hearthstones crying against, and the widowed mothers and orphans will hold her accountable for their murdered kindred. Yet, though this bloody sea lies the land of liberty, and although we may have to pour out rivers of blood, liberty is not attainable without it. The brutality which prompted the slaughter of that garrison of brave men is but a preface to the great book of scaled crimes, which this abominable system of slavery has been penetrating upon our race for 245 years. None but the blacks of this land have heretofore realized the hateful nature of the beast, but now white men are beginning to feel and realize what its beauties are. And go great, uh, important. Uh, if maybe that's the significance of the Fort Pillow Massacre is that blacks and whites were murdered together and and it it wasn't you know up to this point there's always that kind of greater weight that blacks carried on the battlefield the idea they could be re-enslaved or they could be mistreated as prisoners um i guess officers of black soldiers knew that because they could be executed summarily for slave uh, insurrection but now a broader experience of 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 what this hatred and what this system created. Really, really good essay. Um, and he says we have to like avenge and to re and redeem the dead through through victory. Then we have a uh, Gideon Wells diary. Gideon Wells is uh, what was he? The secretary. I keep forgetting these this cabinet positions. Um, Secretary of the Navy, right? Yeah, Secretary of the Navy with Gideon Wells. I shouldn't remember that. This is May 3rd, 5th, and 6th, 1864. And 
he's upset with the president for hesitating on declaring the officers who committed the Fort Pillow massacre outlaws, and he insists on the need for retaliation. This is only in his diary, of course, but we've seen other evidence where Gideon Wells is not entirely happy with Lincoln's uh, hesitation on, on coming down hard on the Confederates when necessary. Um, next we have uh, another uh, interest. Now we're going to move away from the Fort Pillow massacre and talk about the um, an issue that's a bigger something facing southern slaveholders and that's slave impressment something I don't think we've really talked about before of course the question of arming slaves came up previously and I think it will come up again later on as we read deeper into this anthology you know should uh, should the confederates have armed enslaved given freedom in exchange for service something like that of course that was resisted to the last moment by the planter class because it was incompatible with the entire philosophy of the confederacy which was based on this idea of racial you know white supremacy um, but slaves were impressed for service in other affairs right to work with the army to do jobs grunt work kind of stuff but this is a petition by slaveholders against the confederate government questioning the rights and authority of the Confederacy to seize their their property and put it to use without properly compensating them. Um, it's obvious why they made that protest. It's not a big surprise, but I think what's significant about that protest that they lodged, launched is that it's just another sign of the weakening of Confederate nationalism when it hit people's bottom line. It's one thing to be enthusiastic. It's even one thing to send your son to uh to die you can have another if you need to but impressment um the destruction of their homes the the, the a million slaves ran away one out of four slaves ran away during the war that hit them in their estates which didn't just hurt them this generation but all generations to come um and, I, and it's just how slavery was the death of the Confederacy. It's, it, was, it, was, it was its justification and, its, and in some ways it's Achilles' heel. Um, anyways, what's left? Then we have, I'm not going to go through these, I guess, because um, we've got four documents then all about the Battle of the Wilderness, um, which is the first battle of the Overland Campaign. But this is getting a little long. I'm going, I'm going on for quite a while here because I've had a lot of interesting things to say about the documents up to this point. But I don't really want to talk about this 30 pages of memoirs of the of the Battle of the Wilderness, which is the first major battle of the Overland Campaign. Obviously, it was going to set the stage for just how bloody that conflict, that campaign would be. Um, but it was a campaign that was successful in that it kept pressure on the Confederates. The idea was even if we lose more men than they do, which wasn't always the case, right? The Overland campaign was bloody on both sides. I, I just, I saw something about this. Maybe it was on YouTube. Um, maybe it was that Checkmate Lincolnite series, which I advise you to check out. I don't know if he's still doing those. But something about, like, Grant actually lost fewer men by percentage than most other commanders, and certainly Confederate commanders compared to Lee. Lee was more of a butcher than Grant was. But nevertheless, the casualties were pretty high. And, um, 
But the idea was even despite that, keep moving forward because we have the advantage in manpower. And, and eventually we can force the Confederacy to surrender as long as we don't give them a chance to breathe. And that was grand strategy and it worked really well. But um, there's a lot here in these documents. I will say that about just the, the, just the buckets of, of, of guts and the blood and the dead bodies and just how horrible it was. Some of the battle, some of the descriptions of the aftermath of the battle really really nasty um the scarcity of rations you know the it's it, we're gonna see more of that too just just the intensity of the battles and the the heavy costs that these battles had which you know it was necessary to win the war but it's it wasn't pretty when it was done so anyways, I guess that's it. I, I found a lot here in these documents that I was really interested in talking about, though. So I went on for a while. Um, in the next, the next episode will take us through June of 1864. Uh, so we'll continue to follow the Overland Campaign. We'll look at um, up to Cold Harbor, I think. Yeah, I think it's, it's more military stuff, unfortunately. So it might be a little bit of a shorter shorter episode just because I don't um, really feel motivated to spend a lot of time talking about that stuff but um, but I might be wrong we'll see it depends how I feel when I record it so that's coming up in the next episode and I will we'll see you then give me your thoughts about what I've been talking about and um, I look forward to talking with you next time freedom and her train Sixty miles in latitude, three hundred to the main. Treason fled before us, for resistance was in vain. While we were marching through Georgia, hurrah, hurrah. we bring the jubilee. Hurrah, hurrah. The flag that makes you free. So